0: I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And it. it what follows, as he does uh, during every appearance in the program, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Analyze all baseball Of a particular note this week. Despite possessing considerable strength at nearly all of the positions on the team, the Houston Astros lack probably even an average DH and first baseman. Recent injury to Evan Gattis creates even more questions about how the team will extract value from the first base and DH slots. Tyler White is an option, to which many listeners might ask... Who is Tyler White? Dave Cameron is just the man to explain that sort of thing. The player with nearly all of the strengths and weaknesses, as Evan Gaddis and Jonathan Singleton with Houston, is Pedro Alvarez, recently signed by the Baltimore Orioles. Pedro Alvarez signs a team that already includes Mark Trumbo and Chris Davis, which is to say players who feature excellent raw power and also considerable swing and miss. They'll hit plenty of home runs, one assumes, but might the strikeouts actually be a problem? It's an important question and one that leads to a longer discussion about base runs. Base runs, of course, is a runs and wins estimator used at Fangraphs, probably the most accurate available. However, it might have a blind spot.
1: It's the best public run estimator out there. I mean, it's been tested uh, a lot of times for decades. This is not a new tool, and it's a very, very good run estimator. It might have some holes when it comes to runner advancement, though.
0: More on the heart-pounding topic of base runs and other sundry topics in what follows conversation with Cameron. But first, let us not neglect the sponsor's message. The sponsor of this edition of the program is Draft, the Draft app. Are you familiar with DraftKings or FanDuel? Those are known as daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily fantasy sports game. Notable, however, notable for this one reason. It is the first such daily fantasy sports game designed exclusively for mobile devices. What you'll want to do is begin by downloading it, which means if you have the iOS operating system on your device going to the App Store, or contrary-wise, if you have an Android system going to Google Play or something like Google Play. Having downloaded you then register, become part of the draft universe, and then you challenge another user in a one-on-one format to a fantasy game. You each select five players. Those players accrue fantasy points, Whichever, you or your opponent have accrued the most fantasy points. At the end of the night, you are the winner. He or she or it is the winner. Are you afflicted by the mundanity of life? Draft has the exact solution for you. Because with draft, you are able to wager American currency on the outcomes of your one-on-one competitions. Competitions which include currently NBA basketball and NHL hockey. And now in the middle of March, we, we find ourselves achingly close to the beginning of the Major League Baseball season. Achingly close. Achingly close draft also if you weren't aware downloading draft and playing it somehow in a way that is obscure to me but not to ceo and founder david appleman downloading and playing draft benefits fangraphs audio with which utterance i will end this introduction and bring you to a conversation with dave cameron what is it it is fangraphs audio who does it feature managing editor of fangraphs dave cameron when does it begin right now Actually, let me be honest with you i'm a little bit sick oh uh, that sucks, yeah, but um i'm not uh, i'm not um uh, i'm not uh, <laughs> you're not dead i'm not dead
1: yeah that's, that's a good, good
0: one and uh i'm uh, you know i can mostly mostly on my feet i just had a little bit of a fever and some aches.
1: Yeah, the, the I think it's actually uh my wife was saying they've had a bunch of her patients lately come in with the flu, so it's like the end of flu season, but it seems to be like a lingering flu season. A
0: lingering flu. Now, I had a flu shot. Is that not necessarily going to protect me all the way?
1: Not necessarily. There's uh, different strains of the flu virus and and you you might have gotten vaccinated for one of them but gotten a different kind of strain. Well,
0: I'm not exci- I'm not happy about that.
1: Yeah. Well, you should take it up with
0: Scientists. <laughs> I will. I'll get myself to some scientists right after we're done recording here. Uh, okay, good. Let me let me ask you a question. You you wrote about the Astros today. I, wanna, I did. Yeah, and I want to ask you about a question. A question about a player like Evan Gattis. Yeah, right? he's an interesting player. He's very interesting from a biographical standpoint, right? Yeah. Very, very strange profile, and uh, and of course credit to him, and I suppose uh, the organizations that have employed him for uh, believing in him.
1: Well, that was the Braves. Right, right. Yeah, yeah,
0: right. And then he – right. And, and, of course, he's employed by Houston. They seem to feel – have some sort of esteem for him because he's their starter, one of their
1: starters. Yeah. I mean, I think they were like, hey, look, cheap power. Yeah. So I don't know if we want to give them too much credit. Well, he, Here's the point, though, is he's a strange player
0: because he strikes out – um, I think he's projected to strike out maybe 20-21% of the time. Yeah, roughly league average. It's, yeah, 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 not much later. The, yeah. So he's not what you would necessarily call a high strikeout batter. Right. Uh, given that. However, he also doesn't walk. Ever. Ever, yeah. really. I mean, yeah. or you know, very rarely. I think he's projected yeah. for like 5%, something like yeah. that, and that's commensurate with uh, his established records. And, and so I suppose if you were to if you were in conversation, you were attempting to characterize him, Gaddis. Now you you did this a similar thing with Jonathan Singleton. Singleton has had has recorded higher strikeout rates over the course yeah. of his career. He's a high, a high strikeout batter with power. Gaddis, of course, has power, good raw power, but he's not a high strikeout batter. If you were attempting to characterize him briefly uh, to another person, what, what would you call him?
1: So I would say Gaddis has kind of a, an interesting combination of, uh, almost elite power. I mean, he's probably one of the strongest guys in baseball, uh, with, you know, quality contact rates. You don't see often guys who make contact as often as Gaddis does, who can hit the ball as far as he does. That's a pretty rare skill. And the guys who can do it, uh, are generally really good players. Uh, but I think the problem for Gaddis is that he's just really terrible at deciding when to swing. So it's a really good physical skills in terms of power and contact. With probably some deficiency in the judgment side of things. Right,
0: and that's, a, uh, this could be a problem. I'm, cu- I'm curious if there are other situations like this where players are almost hamstrung by a, a skill that they have that is elite compared to the rest yeah. of the population.
1: Yeah, I would compare him to like maybe like a, uh, a good but not great, uh, shooter in basketball who then, becomes convinced that he should shoot all the time. So you have like a guy who's like, you know, he's a good enough shooter to, you're not telling him to stop shooting, but he becomes so convinced of his skill that he shoots way too often and hurts your team. Like JR, uh, are you know. talking about JR Smith right now? Yeah, I mean, that could be one guy. Yeah, yeah. I think like, uh, they are, you know, end of career Allen Iverson, one of these right. guys. Where it's like, well, you're good enough to play, but not good enough to help us win. This is a this is a problem.
0: Right, and I I don't know. Do you think that happens elsewhere in baseball where certain players? Because they possess an elite skill or an elite tool, they become perhaps reliant or it, cause it doesn't, it doesn't require them to develop any further. Right. I don't uh, know. I think about this with, cause I remember when Kylie was talking about Tukey Toussaint last year. Yeah. He mentioned how Toussaint would frequently throw his secondary stuff in, even in high school games. Right. When it would have made sense just to throw his fastball as hard as he could just to show that he had the velocity.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, but he was actually trying to mix his pitches, which might have hurt his draft stock, might not, but it's it's rare. Um, yeah. But he was actually attempting to become a better player overall
1: yeah I mean I, I think like maybe not, not Justin Rolander's had a great career, but I think like in the last couple of years, we've seen his velocity diminish and he's become a worse pitcher and I've saw some comments from Rolander I think last summer where he talked about for the first time in his career, he's actually gonna like start looking at scouting reports and like figure out what uh, other hitters' weaknesses are and this is an interesting case of not necessarily that he needed to make those adjustments earlier in his career because he threw ninety seven and he had a really good curveball and uh, he could just overpower guys. But he was very reliant on his stuff. And now that his stuff has diminished and he's not the same quality of pitcher, he's really struggled the last couple of years. And this might be an example of a guy who, uh, you know, if he had not had those physical skills, would not have been, been able to succeed in the major leagues with his approach.
0: So he became like a normal human pitcher around the age of 33?
1: Yeah, he or he or stopped, he stopped being a freak of nature.
0: Right, right. Or he or or at least he's, he's, he's learning now that he's a normal because he was actually correct me if I'm wrong, he was quite good in the second half last year.
1: Yeah, he bounced back and it seems like potentially he could be like going through an adjustment where he has to learn how to pitch instead of just being like, Here's my stuff and you can't hit it. That's not unprecedented, is it? No, it's happened before, and I think we've seen, like, one of the reasons pitcher aging curves are so weird is that guys pick up new pitches late in their careers, or they, you know, dramatically change their style. Or, you know, I think, like, to me, I will probably always think of Randy Johnson when I think of, like, dramatic career changes was like, a guy who came into the league in his mid-20s throwing 100 miles an hour and no idea where it's going, and then he pitched until he was, like, 45, and at the end of his career he was throwing 89 and had impeccable command and didn't walk anybody. It was, like, two. Dramatically different pitchers, almost like diametrically opposed. We almost have that with the Bartolo Colon now as well. Of these guys who are just like not at all what they were when they came into the league.
0: Yeah, actually, August Figgershram was writing about the Nationals, uh, the Nationals rotation today, and how they all became a little bit more extreme with their fastballs. Yeah. The guys who threw high fastballs started throwing higher fastballs. The guy who threw low, low fastballs started throwing lower fastballs. He said that's typically you typically should do one or the other: focus high or low. Um, only Bartolo, he's something he's effective. Only Bartolo Colon, uh, has just the throw the ball down the middle fastball. It, it yeah. seems to work for him.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, he's basically, like, uh, hanging out in the major leagues at a point where we probably wouldn't expect him to be hanging out in the major leagues given his stuff, but he's figured out how to command one pitch and he just does it over and over.
0: Right. Well, his fastball usage rates are, I mean, I think he has a couple different fastballs, right?
1: Right. But it's still like 90%. Right. Yeah.
0: That's, that's rare that guys hang around. Especially starters hang around with that yeah. sort of
1: – Yeah, you don't thing. see the the one-pitch starter too often. Mm-hmm. If if that one-pitch is like an 87-mile-an-hour fastball, it's perplexing.
0: If he were 18 right now, well, we're, we're – actually, it, yeah, if he had the same thing, if he was all the same thing, maybe you could give him a slightly better body because he'd be an 18-year-old. <laughs> and an 18-year-old with that body is – like has all of the diabetes – <laughs> that you could possibly have but if you take if you take an 18 year old with
1: the exact pro like scouting report what it like where would he be drafted uh i don't know 35th round <laughs> like, right i mean i guess it depends on how projectable like his the body we're giving him is maybe he's like six seven and lean someone would be like oh he could add some velocity but if we just think of him as like a, a guy who's going to throw 87 in his one pitch yeah, not not a prospect
0: right maybe you go to college and he'll play well for south carolina
1: yeah, or like, you know, uh, maybe like East Carolina even. No, not quite, not quite. Uh, not, quite uh, not,
0: not even South Carolina. So, so that's the thing about Evan, G- this was all part of a conversation, <laughs> about Evan. guess. But, but the, the, yeah, because I think he, obviously the profile is, is, it's rich, uh, for, for consideration. Um, but that's one part of it maybe. Uh, one, uh, an instance where, where a player possesses a skill that, um, maybe obscures, uh, deficiency. And uh, that happens, but so Gaddis is part of this larger conversation, though, right? With regard to the Houston Astros, who've constructed a great team, except where those teams are most bat reliant, uh, because their first base and their DH spots are occupied by Gaddis and Singleton, both of whom, you know, are unlikely to crack what a much above a league average batting line.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at this lineup and say, like, there's a legitimate case that, like, the team's first baseman and DH should hit, like, seventh and eighth in their lineup or something. I mean, you know, you've got a shortstop who can hit, like, a first baseman, which is a nice luxury to have, Uh, but then you've got a whole bunch of, like, you know, solid hitters at up-the-middle positions in center field and right field and second base, and, um, you know, even at third base, Luis Valdezman is a decent enough hitter. He's not a great hitter, but he's a decent hitter. They don't have, like, necessarily holes in their lineup uh where you have like some you know you don't have a Brendan Ryan or something dragging down the obvious nine spot but it, when you look at first base and dh where you would expect to get some significant offensive production they have guys who hit like shortstops or like third baseman or something so uh it'll be interesting to see how long the leash is with Singleton and Gaddis, and whether um, they're basically—I mean, I would assume at this point they're just like AJ Reed will get one of those spots in May as soon as he proves he's better than AAA hit, uh, pitchers. So, which one of the two goes away to make room for Reed, and then you know what they do with um, their roster flexibility? You don't necessarily want to just call up a you know first baseman bench the other first baseman keep your dh who can't play the field around and limit yourself to only having you know two or three backups for all the rest of the position so i think in may the astros might have some interesting choices to make
0: right you you mentioned that that those two guys because you know by virtue of their roughly league average batting lines or projected batting lines they hit like a you know like a third baseman or something like that um or you know a different a different sort of player but bless you
1: Thanks. I tried to sneeze as far from the mic as possible. No, pop. you didn't. Well, did I was sure did to pick it up.
0: <clears throat> but the difference is, so the, they do hit like that in terms of the outcome. The process is a little bit different in the sense that it's it's basically like entirely reliant on power, right? Yeah. And that's that's not a profile that's uncommon to those positions, first base and home run. And I I, I guess my inkling is that the reason that you see that is because players who have a high power ceiling that creates a high ceiling for their offense all around. But do you, I mean, do you think there's anything, any, any other sort of, uh, any other reason that the Astros might have confidence in these guys that they don't in another sort of player?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, like, you look at the Astros team, it's, uh, it's a little strange to know what the Astros actually believe in the sense of, like, we can look at what they, the rosters they've built the last couple of years. But at the same time, they were basically just throwing spaghetti at the wall during rebuilding years when they weren't really trying to win. So, you know, they had guys like Chris Carter and Singleton and George Springer and, I mean, they, this is like, these are guys who strike out a lot. And we could say, okay, looks like the Astros don't really care about strikeouts. They value power and they're willing to trade contact for power. Except then they non-tendered Chris Carter. Uh, and, you know, like it's not necessarily clear that, um that's going to be the kind of player they want to have going forward. And so, um, they're kind of, you know, new type of player. They helped Springer kind of strike out down a bit. They traded for Carlos Gomez. Uh, you know, they're playing bueno who's, you know, a little bit more of a contact guy than some other guys at the, at the position. And so trading power at third base to get a little more contact. So I don't think we really know if the Astros are kind of a power first and sacrifice contact organization or if that's just what they did during the rebuilding years, kind of how they, Handled Tyler White might be a good example of this. It's like you know they have an underpowered, uh, high contact first base DH type who potentially is ready for the big leagues. Uh, is 25 years old, doesn't have a lot of time to spend. If they decide Singleton's striking out too much, uh, or Gattis isn't producing, and they give a guy like White a chance, it could signal that they might be moving away from their you know swing as hard as possible approach, uh, from previous years.
0: Right, and as you mentioned, like they really did go through a period where they were attempting just to. Find anyone who would be a positive positive influence on on the win column. Uh, So perhaps you know, perhaps George Springer is to some degree, uh, you know, maybe he is an expression of a of a a, a, of a culture within the organization of um, you know of of allowing high strikeout guys to play. But it's also possible that you know he was just the best player on the team.
1: You know, yeah, right. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the possibilities. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, uh, you mentioned Tyler White. Tyler White, the numbers he put up last year in AAA, he was basically, I mean, he was basically the, and perhaps I'm just thinking this because we're talking about designated hitter role, the Edgar Martinez of, you know, the Pacific Coast League or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, because he does not have a ton of home run power, right. but he does seem to be pretty excellent in terms of, um, you know, overall damage on contact. Do, do do you have a sense of what his role will be as the season begins
1: uh i mean uh, so i think it's unknown uh, it really will probably come down to how much they value that 40 man roster spot because white's not on the 40 man and when you have a prospect who's uh, you know, maybe has some uncertainty around him. I think, as we, as I noted in the piece, uh, guys with White's profile where it's a lot of walks in the minor leagues, that doesn't often translate to the big league level because that skill can go away when you face pitchers who aren't afraid of you and will just throw you strikes. Uh, so if you have a little bit of uncertainty about whether White's gonna produce, do you wanna burn a 40 man spot? Uh, that they potentially, you know, would have to lose a player uh, that they might like or that they might not want to lose, um, especially because the Astros have had 40-man crunch uh, over the the winters last couple winters where they had to leave some guys unprotected um, or trade away some guys as they did in the Ken Giles deal just because they had so many guys to protect. They might not want to spend a 40-man roster spot on on Tyler White and just say, you know what? It's not worth it to us. We're just going to roll with Matt Duffy or Marwin Gonzalez or um, something along those lines. Um, So I would think that White has a chance, but he's going to have to really mash all spring training. And it would probably help him if Gaddis, you know, had a setback in his rehab or at least wasn't like going to be ready a week after opening day. If it looks like Gaddis is going to miss the whole month of May, they probably don't want to roll with Matt Duffy as their primary DH for a month.
0: Now, you mentioned um, – we mentioned earlier in this conversation Chris Carter. Chris Carter is now – uh he was non-tendered by Houston, I, I suppose, because – I mean, is it, that's a similar situation as the Pedro Alvarez one, I assume. Yeah. Uh, he was going to
1: make like five or six million bucks in arbitration, and they said no thanks.
0: Right, a player whose value is tied almost exclusively to power, high strikeout numbers, and yeah. the, the employing team says, eh. Yeah, it's gonna. It's more. We're going to, we think we're gonna. We're gonna be paying you more than you're worth,
1: right? Right. Or, we, or we can spend that six million dollars on something we like better.
0: Right now, the Milwaukee Brewers who acquired him in the meantime, yeah. and uh, the Milwaukee Brewers uh, have made. It seems as though almost all the moves they've made this offseason are fantastic.
1: Is there Well, some... they, they look like they have the potential to be good. Yeah, I mean, well, right. the, but you... I think like betting on a guy like Chris Carter is not a guaranteed home run.
0: Right. Oh, pun intended.
1: And and not I'm, I'm, really, but I'm, once it came out, I was
0: kind of happy you're, with it. You're fine with it. Here's the question. Is there, and I think I know the answer, but I'm interested in your thoughts on it. Is there a situation where, um, where acquiring Chris Carter is a good move for the Milwaukee Brewers, even though letting Chris Carter go is also a good move for the Houston Astros?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, like, especially as, uh, if there's something to the idea that, con- like, extreme low contact teams underperform their kind of expected records, which is one of the things that I noted in the piece about base runs last week, um, it could be that the Astros could get some significant marginal gain from... Just changing kind of the style of their offense and saying, okay, look, we just we're too extreme of a strikeout team. We don't necessarily need to become a contact team, but we just need to like move out of the most extreme tier of strikeouts. Uh, and say Carter's, you know, one of the biggest uh, strikeout problems on our team. So if we replace Carter with a guy who makes, you know, 20% strikeouts or 22% instead of 35%, it could have some impact on. Uh, our overall lineups and our ability to, you know, score runs uh, or score runs in situations that matter. Um, so I think you could potentially have a, an improvement from the Astros simply from changing the kind of team they have rather than upgrading. And for the Brewers, I think you know betting on a guy with Carter's power is not a terrible idea. I mean, the Orioles did that with Chris Davis a few years ago, and turned into one of the best players in baseball. Occasionally, these guys do figure out how to become uh better or good enough contact hitters and good enough all around players to justify uh their spot in the lineup despite their their contact issues. And so, you know, for the Brewers who are basically just looking at upside and where the Astros were a few years ago, nothing wrong with taking a lottery taking another guy like that for the one in ten chance that he becomes a, you know, high quality slugger.
0: Right. And that and that seems to be a a, a big part of it. what you just mentioned there is that the Brewers are essentially where the Astros were a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. All
1: right. When you're when you're a rebuilding team you want to take uh, all-or-nothing shots, right? Because if like Chris Carter's bad, that's okay. <laughs> it doesn't really matter <laughs> if right, Carter's right. bad. But if you're the Astros, you can't really afford to have a guy just sticking up the lineup every day. You need a little more certainty,
0: right? Uh, now you've you've made uh, reference a couple times here to the effect of a low contact approach on a team's uh, not just at a team's wins and losses, but on those wins and losses relative to the base runs record. Yeah, uh, base runs, of course, is a is a method of what estimating a, a team's win-loss record by virtue of various events? It, yep. well you could of filter out sequencing. Yeah, All right. Does that—that's a fair enough uh, summary? Yeah, was
1: basically just recreating their expected records based on raw inputs.
0: Right. Now you found, you found the teams. Uh, now you were looking. You started this, I think, looking at this with the Royals, uh, teams that resembled the Royals, which is to yeah. say teams that, uh, for what, two or three years had had out um, outperformed their base runs records, um, yeah. they seem to possess a skill. Uh, they uh, seem to possess an ability maybe,
1: to – I don't think we know that they possess a skill. Okay, I, I would not yet go that far. They they have over a uh, multi-year period of time posted significantly better records than base runs expects, whether that's uh, just you know random variation or skill, we don't really know yet. And teams that did it for three years seem to do it for a fourth year too. To a much less extent, yeah. I mean, the teams that were the most extreme in terms of beating their base runs, uh, I think on average they beat their base runs by, what, seven, seven, six or seven wins per year over that three-year stretch. Um, they outperformed their base runs record by about three and a half wins in that fourth year. So they sustained about half of their prior uh, kind of base runs uh, beating ability. Right. And as you
0: noted, the effect was not necessarily symmetrical, and I think we... I've discussed how that's probably a result of any team that's underperformed uh for 3 years yeah. is probably likely to Just be get rid re- of all their players. <laughs> yeah. it's, that's going to be disbanded that yeah. uh, that get up.
1: You don't you don't get a fourth try.
0: <clears throat> now, in in examining the Pedro Alvarez signing, I I mean that's I think it's where it sort of started looking at yeah. the signing of Pedro Alvarez by Baltimore, a team uh that employs a number of other players like Alvarez who also swing and miss quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, that I think that led you down. Uh, or ask, that led you to ask a couple of questions about the relationship between what certain indicators and uh, the ability to under or overperform uh, base runs record, and one of those might be strikeouts.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when we look at what base runs is, it's basically a run estimator, right? So if you take a whole bunch of individual events. So we know that this team had whatever 200 doubles and 150 homers, and you know, just like. This is the collection of things that they did, and then we're trying to figure out how to turn those into a number of expected runs. Uh, base runs is a, it's the best public run estimator out there. I mean, it's been tested uh, a lot of times for decades. This is not a new tool. Um, and it's a very, very good run estimator. It might have some holes when it comes to runner advancement though. Like one of the kind of weak points is always um, been pointed out over the 20 years since base runs was, was kind of put on the scene is that the um, part of the formula that essentially estimates uh, runner scoring was always just uh, created based on empirical data. It didn't necessarily have a, a strong underlying core for why that was the correct formula. And so it was always thought like if we're going to improve base runs, the runner advancement part of it might be uh, the area to do that. And if you think about strikeout teams and teams with extreme strikeout rates, it seems possible that they could be worse at advancing runners because they make uh, so many so many of their plays involve non advancing uh, advancing plays that might be a weak spot for base runs. It's not necessarily uh, something that I say we've proven or that this is absolutely a, a conclusion we can come to, but it looks like over the last decade or so, teams who strike out an awful lot, like the Astros of the recent years or probably this year's Orioles, have historically underperformed their base runs by about three wins a year, which isn't nothing. All
0: right so now is it is, is are strikeouts part of the base runs algorithm
1: no they're not included so it's basically just looking at like singles doubles home runs um kind of the actual events, uh and then uh kind of um, uh i don't know what the best way to describe it Combine is it, it basically it, yeah it models uh expected runs based on kind of the the positive outcomes the team has uh well here's, uh, what,
0: what if you were to take like the last three years worth of major league data and just run a regression using the same, using the same events except adding strikeouts? Do you think that would give you any sort of accurate outcome?
1: No, regressions are going to be significantly inferior to something like base runs. Uh, regressions are going to overfit some data and you you're, you're um, I mean, without getting, like, too technical into some of the flaws with the regression, is if you just run a regression on the data, you're going to end up with uh some really weird uh false conclusions. Like, people have historically tried to just run regressions on, like, the run values of plays, and then the regression will tell you, like, a triple is more valuable than a home run because triples are more rare, which is, you know, obviously not true. That's ridiculous. But yeah, it's, right.
0: you got to be careful with regression. Keep the
1: rally going, Dave Cameron. Yeah, it, it it maybe unless the guy uh, at third is you know really slow. Well, how do he get to third to begin with? Maybe the outfielder fell down. Yeah, or, bro- or broke his leg. Maybe Evan Gaddis was playing the outfield. Yeah. Well, then let's
0: let's have the next guy hit it to the same position.
1: <laughs> well, if he's a high strikeout guy, maybe he can't. Maybe, hit maybe Evan he Gattis. can't
0: do it. Boom says Dave Cameron. You know, a brief aside. I was watching some college baseball this past weekend, Dave Cameron, Which I know yeah. probably yeah, you spent the majority of your weekend as well. No. No, okay, no. The no. No. um I know that you you may not be the person in fact I don't think you're the person who coined the expression but I know that you've recited it before uh which is that if you play uh, a team that plays only for one run will yeah. get when, only one run.
1: Yeah. When
0: what, you play for one run you only get one run. You only get one run. Yes, and I was okay. watching the Louisville baseball team. The first uh, five batters in which are all like they're all for different reasons like very, you know, very possibly draft candidates, and Corey Ray is very likely a first-round candidate. Right. And immediately – and Corey Ray, by the way, has stolen like – I think he's already stolen like a a base per game. He gets on first, uh, maybe by virtue of a walk or a hit. It doesn't matter. He's on first base. And the very next batter, they're bunting with him. This is the second batter of the game.
1: Yeah. College coaches are crazy.
0: Yeah. Although, to be fair, I think, to be fair, the the, – The effect is mitigated a little bit because, um, or the, I'd say the lack of wisdom is is mitigated a little bit because college defenses are also not as good. Yeah, so
1: you have like higher error rates, I guess, but that probably uh, still doesn't justify the number of bunts and. I don't think it's
0: frustrating. I think if you have a a quality offense and you're in the middle of your best batters on that offense, probably it makes sense to let them swing away. Yeah. Anyway, it was a little bit frustrating, especially because it would have been nice if they could just have Corey Ray steal the base. You know, neither here nor there, really. Let's, uh, so what will this mean do you? What did do that
1: have to do with anything? Uh,
0: because we were looking at the, see, well, it was an aside. I, I definitely, I broadcasted the fact that it was an aside, but it was,
1: it was, it was I don't even know that it was an side. We were it talking about like
0: sequencing, a... no sequencing of events, and, okay. uh, yeah, so is there a correlation uh here 's a question is there a correlation between run scored or an inverse correlation between run scored and sacrifice bunt attempts?
1: Yes, but the, you don't necessarily want to say that like there's the causal effect like um okay. I think we could uh essentially uh, the answer would be yes, teams that suck on offense bunt more, <laughs> and so if you have a good offense you're less likely to bunt, so therefore the Driver of bunting is probably bad hitting, rather than bunting being the driver of not scoring runs.
0: How would you isolate it? I guess you, if you know the, well, the value of an out is different for every team as well, right?
1: Yes. If you have a bunch of crappy hitters, bunting is a more effective strategy because the uh, benefits of swinging away are reduced.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Which is why pitchers bunt, right?
0: Right. So what's the, all right, so what's going to happen with the Orioles then?
1: Uh well they're gonna play some baseball.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Yeah. Bold, bold <laughs> no, predictions I mean, from Dave Cameron. <laughs> I think uh we don't really know, but I would say uh th- I would be concerned if I was an Orioles fan about stacking up a lineup with Davis Trumbo Alvarez, uh Matt Wieters. uh, you know, the the even their role players like Jimmy Peretta strike out a lot. Um their contact issues I think could become a real problem for them.
0: Where's Danny Valencia now? Uh Oakland. yeah oh, okay. That guy's good. that guy gets around. He definitely did play uh, for the Orioles at one point.
1: I think he's played for everyone at one yeah, point. Yeah, no, I think he's He was on Team Fangraphs for a while, and then we released him. I think.
0: Aw. Yeah. Hey, have we, reached the, have we reached the conclusion here?
1: <laughs> is that you were like this is that oh, that that comment was so ridiculous you're just gonna have, stop? Have you have, have you fulfilled your obligation?
0: I feel like you uh, might have.
1: Okay. Well, I will defer to your judgment.
0: Yeah, I think
1: which is
0: I think not you, something I usually do. I think you have. Um, I no, well, we can at least talk about a brief programming note, which is that um, I will not be here. Uh, I will not be around for the next week because I will be in France.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think we can still a terrible place
0: to be. Yeah, was well, but I think we can actually still record next week because I plan to bring my microphone to that silly country, so I can record oh. from France on Monday.
1: So what time would our normal recording time be in France time?
0: Well, I think, uh of course, we've just gone through um,
1: – Daylight Savings. Yeah, Daylight right?
0: Savings. But I, I think that that country has not yet. So I think it's only okay. five hours ahead. So I believe I would be doing it at 7 p.m.
1: So instead of going out to dinner with your lovely wife in Paris, you're yeah. going to record a podcast with me.
0: I'll talk to you instead. Actually, uh, you know uh we're going to be – we're going to be in Europe, so we're going to behave like Europeans, and we won't be going out to eat at 7 p.m., Dave Cameron. Wait till, huh. wait till 9, probably.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I still think it's silly that you would choose talking to me over talking to your wife, but maybe she doesn't want to talk to you.
0: So. You know who thinks it's uh, less silly is um, – who's the guy who uh, – with the paychecks there? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, yeah, David, he probably uh, does. Yeah, he, did, right. he thinks – yeah.
1: From oh, all the money <laughs> these podcasts bring in for us. Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. Anyway, Dave Cameron – a real pleasure. Thank you. You've you've fulfilled your obligation. You're welcome. All right. Thank you. Thank you to Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.